Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans, root access, and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, Visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Adam Johnson, who's the co-founder and CEO of IOPipe. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, thanks, and good morning. (laughs) It is morning. Uh, One thing I want to start with here is a disclaimer, that I am an IOPipe customer. You're not paying me to say that. You're not sponsoring this episode. You are effectively here because you're doing interesting things in the world of serverless observability, or observerless, as I insist on calling it. Uh, Not because this is not a paid placement. I just love the service. And getting you folks involved in what I'm doing is always something I try to do. I think you're the second person I had with uh, Erica being the first from IOPipe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for the for the kind words, for sure. Happy to uh, to talk today about uh, some of the things we've been seeing. Perfect. Before we dive too far into customer stories and specific things that you've seen, I want to start with a question just for my own curiosity. About a week or two ago at the time of this recording, they sort of had a stealth announcement that wasn't usually publicized, but okay, you can now wind up running Lambda functions for 15 minutes instead of the five-minute Lambda functions timeouts that we saw before. Where do you land on that? <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I think that feature and previous features that were rolled out quietly were probably done for really specific customers of theirs that had very specific use cases, right? I, I, I generally am happy with them increasing that time. I don't think most people are going to ever use it, but it's nice to... Do it just so that you know people aren't saying that serverless is uh, not useful because it has this five minute limit. Um, Fifteen minutes is a very long time, and uh, you can do a lot of stuff uh, with that. And I think it does open up some new use cases, um, especially in like machine learning. 
um, doing a lot of distributed stuff. There was recently a um, a paper that came out where they were they were essentially doing a lot of uh, machine learning type stuff in a very distributed way. I forgot I forgot who rolled that out, but um, it was an interesting use case, and and those definitely weren't as possible with the five minute limitation. So, you know, while it may not be common, I think it's nice to open it open it up to more use cases. I'd heard whispers that I was never able to substantiate that they were doing things like this on a case-by-case basis for very specific customers of extending the Lambda runtime. I can't obviously confirm that, but that's something that I wound up hearing about. So it's sort of, on the one hand, it's neat that they're making this available to everyone now. My concern is that this feels like it's the sort of thing that's going to empower three or four really helpful use cases and several tens of thousands of absolutely terrible architectures where, yay, we're one step closer to shoving our entire monolith into a Lambda function. Now, if only they'd give us more disk, more RAM, more <laughs> connectivity, etc. And I, I got to say, it's... I'm a bit of a skeptic on this. I come from a world where I went through the whole process of naivete as a developer, where I would build an awesome system that I was sure would fix all the problems of the systems that came beforehand, and there was no way that people would misuse this. And then I saw what customers did once they got it into their hands, and that that scarred me, Adam. I mean, there are some things that I'll never be able to heal based upon people implementing things terribly. This is a finely crafted torque wrench. We're going to use it as a hammer. Yeah, it's, it's true. But I think at the same time, if you look at the history of serverless, um, you know, I, w- I would consider things like platform as a service, you know, in early iteration of serverless and things like Google App Engine, which is a great platform, didn't really take off um, the way that they had anticipated. And I think like one of the main reasons for that is because it was very opinionated and had too many guardrails for developers. And with guardrails that substantial, developers will kind of shy away from using that framework or technology or platform. Um, and I think that that's why Lambda has been very popular is because it hasn't really been as prescriptive as earlier incantations. Uh, so you know, it's it's much more welcome by developers because they can they can do what they want uh, in general and. That's good and bad for sure. People are always going to write, you know, terrible things that shouldn't exist. But, you know, I think it should be up to them. It should be up to education. It shouldn't be the platform's responsibility to, you know, hinder certain use cases just to, you know, make sure that uh, developers are working within the, the narrow constraints that the provider decides for them. Very diplomatically put, and I'm certainly not going to argue that point with you. One thing I'm curious about, since you're in a, I guess, a better position to see what the industry is doing with serverless than I am, how are you seeing people use this? I mean, I, I keep viewing the idea of Lambdas, serverless, all of this as something that in its current state is something of a toy. You replace cron jobs with it, you can wind up implementing trivial things, but it's not the sort of thing that you would build an entire business application or SaaS platform on top of. And and yes, there are notable exceptions there. To be clear, and I don't believe that that's going to be the case forever, I think we're probably about 18 months away from seeing some transformative shifts in that space. But I'm curious as to what you're seeing today. I can make naive assumptions all morning long, I'd rather see what you're seeing here in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I hear that all the time. Like I talk to, you know, VP of engineering and things like this uh and it's a common 
comment that I hear about serverless is that, you know, Lambda is, is mainly just for like cron jobs or like toy applications. They can't really fathom that it's used for anything critical. Um, but we do see a wide variety of stuff for, with our users. You know, we see, you know, companies that are startups, uh, who are kind of born serverless, who are building their startup with serverless as the foundation, which gives them some, you know, advantages over their incumbents, right? If you build something from the ground up with serverless in mind, that suddenly opens up a lot of different opportunities that your competitors don't have, uh, right? Your competitors may have very limited um, ways in which they can charge their users based on how they consume computing resources uh, that the startup may not. So I think it's opening up those use cases. We typically see those those startups are doing the most interesting things, um, primarily because you know they're starting with all greenfield. They are trying to go all in on serverless. It may be you know somewhat painful in some areas, but I think as you said, over the course of eighteen months, many of those gaps are going away. Just as we're seeing, like that duration is increased. The cold starts have been um, less and less of an issue over time. I think it's still an issue for some languages, but for languages like Node um, and Python, um, it's very minimal uh, impacts these days. And this is something that you know you don't find AWS talking about, uh, but they are like quietly improving these things to the point where it's extremely minimal. I think on the other side, you know, non-startups, we do see, you know, companies, larger companies like large enterprises who are traditionally laggards um, starting to embrace serverless before we see the traditional early adopters that we would consider an early adopter. I think that's super interesting to me and it was very unexpected to see. Um, and I think what's going on is, you know, the early adopters jumped on the Kubernetes bandwagon very early on and they're kind of deep down that path. You know, and they they're you know they don't want to make a change right now because they've already invested so much into that direction. Meanwhile, there's all these laggards who are just now going to public cloud. Right, still a majority of the market is not in the public cloud, so there's there's a lot of uh, of uh, change to be happening in the future. Uh, but those companies who are deciding to do the lift and shift to AWS or other public clouds are looking at the technologies that they should choose today that's going to be prominent in three years. And a lot of them are looking at this and they're making a decision like, should I invest in containers or should I invest in serverless? I think most of them will end up doing a mix of both, but I think they have to place their bets where they think things are going to head in the future. And a lot of them are seeing serverless as an interesting way for them to leapfrog the early adopter competitors in their space instead of their developers worrying about you know setting up clusters and coding infrastructure. They can then just spend their time building and shipping business logic. You know, if they are doing that, they certainly, in my mind, are going to have an advantage over their competitors who were the early adopters in the in the coming years. There's a lot that you just said that we can unpack, but one thing I want to focus on is the idea that this empowers new billing models. I don't mean for you to throw anyone under the bus in particular, but the idea of being able to trace the flow of capital through your organization, as Simon Wardley says, is something that's compelling. And as this accounts for more and more of what workloads a company runs, it enables you to do that. But it also sort of unlocks a Rube Goldberg pricing chart 
that is going to scare the crap out of an awful lot of people. Well, every time you wind up listing the users, we're going to charge you a quarter of a penny. Every time you query that, we're going to charge you a tenth of a penny. And it, it turns very quickly into this thing where the pricing model does not make sense to a human being. Are you seeing startups going in that particular direction or are you seeing it in a more, how do I put this, human sense? Uh, definitely the latter. I mean, I think it's possible to do that, but I, I think it's, uh, like you said, it's pretty obvious that um, if you have such a complicated uh, pricing structure, it's going to be very hard to um, to convince people to buy into that. But I think what we do see is somewhere in the middle where they have a lot more flexibility on their margins to either lower their price in general um, with with simple pricing structures or change it to a different model that's that's quite flexible but not as complicated. For example, if you're using the service, you're consuming compute, um, so you should pay for it at that point. But if you're not using the service, you may not have to pay for it. Um, I think I haven't seen that uh, prominently happen yet, but I think it's possible, and I'm kind of interested in seeing what comes out of that. I don't know what the winning pricing models are going to look like, but it is opening up the use case to them. And I suspect that some startups are going to you know, realize this and start taking advantage of that to differentiate. It makes sense that you wind up having a pricing model that's at least loosely coupled to what it actually costs you. And I think that being able to get that level of granularity into what it costs to provide a service internally is incredibly valuable just for a business metrics perspective. That said, on the other side of the coin, I've always been a big believer in charging based upon value as opposed to charging based upon cost. It feels like the former winds up in a sort of an escalating chain the longer you do something, and the latter tends to generally lead you into a race to the bottom. Yeah, I'm worried that there are going to be some stories around Lambda that that end that way. Yeah, I I agree with that as well. I'm in the camp of charging based on value as well. and you know, I've, I've, you know, even for our service, I've had like you know, folks at uh, AWS like want us to do more like metered pricing um, based on you know very specific like things around Lambda. But everyone hates that. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, it's 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 missing the point of like what value are you actually providing um, to teams? And and I think that should be really where the focus is. But I am in favor of like having a foundation. You know, if serverless can open up a foundation where that gives you more flexibility in the choices that you're making on your pricing um, and opens up higher margins, that's always a good thing. Because um, I do think that in, in the startup world, startups are pricing their products too low. Um, everybody starts by pricing them too low. They're not really understanding the value that they're providing to their end users in the early days. Um, and that, that value increases over time. So I think it's um, it's just a trend that happens. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you in in the being a little bit scared by that trend continuing and going down to zero because um, that's just not helping the end users in the long term. They may they may be saving money in the short term, but um, if that startup it, or or co- company in general is not getting the margins, they can't reinvest that into R and D and creating new technologies and new innovations. Um, so to me, it's like a world where you know customers just jump from vendor to vendor. Um, looking for the next cool thing. Um, and that's a lot of time spent um, in switching as well. Exactly. There's, as again, as one of your customers, there's a keen appreciation that I've developed for the way that you wind up pricing things. I think every month I've had you folks in place, you have cost significantly more than the Lambda functions you monitor because my Lambda bill hovers somewhere around 60 cents. <laughs> and 
that's fine because the value of understanding what that application does is worth far more to me than 60 cents a month. I care about understanding and seeing what happens. Uh, To be clear, I have several different applications running Lambda, including the entire production pipeline for my ridiculous newsletter, uh, which is last week in aws.com for those who aren't familiar with it. The sign-up link for that as well leverages two Lambda functions and an API gateway. That's the thing that I've set IOPipe to wake me up in the night if it winds up breaking. If someone if someone can't subscribe to the newsletter, that's a problem and I need to be aware of that. I think I've seen all of three times where that has gone off in the past four or five months. And in every time, it was someone doing something bizarre and not formatting an input correctly, not trying to wind up operating good faith. There was a penetration test that uh, I wound up commissioning that wound up triggering some of it. And that's exactly what I want. It's not excessively noisy. It's not something that I want to ne- to roll into a larger platform that winds up managing 15 different things that are vaguely correlated. It does one thing, it does it extremely well, and I can integrate it to the rest of my view of my business. And that's something that I find incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of trying to tie this into something that varies is nuts. More to the point, my Amazon build doesn't change based upon what you folks do. And with a lot of monitoring platforms, that's not true. I've done trials where the monitoring system cost me nothing, but it doubled my CloudWatch bill just out of the blue. And th- th- that, that tends to be an intensely frustrating conversation. Yeah, I agree. Especially you know with the trend of using more and more third-party services, um, which, which I'm a fan of. It is complicated, but, it, but I think in general it helps like anybody build things that just weren't possible before. But it does add that complexity of like when you make a change to this dependency, what how is it going to affect the pricing of everything else? Um, that's that's super complicated. You know, and I don't think there's a there's been a great solution around that yet, um, for sure. But but I do agree like the the value that that the companies provide really should be where things are priced. And for us it's it's really about like providing more confidence to developers who ship their code. They don't want to get woken up in the middle of the night, right? And you want to make sure that what you're shipping is working and that when there is a problem, you want to quickly know, is it my problem or is it one of those third-party services that I'm using? Is it a database I'm relying on um, or, or some authentication service or what what have you? Um, you want to get to those answers as quickly as possible. And you know, one of the trends that we're seeing in serverless is that developers are almost always the ones who are woken up and on call for the functions that they ship. Even if there is a dedicated like ops team or DevOps team, that is how it works. And we found that to be the case pretty early on when building IOPipe. Um, so we've been focusing on really providing value to the developers themselves to provide them with you know, some, some service that acts as another extension of their team that has their back, that helps it so that they don't have to dig through mountains of logs to figure out like was this my code acting up some code path that that I just didn't expect to happen or is it just because there was a network blip you know uh, between the lambda container and Dynamo right that actually happened to us like just the other day like we we got an alert with one of our data pipelines we basically have an alert set up for when the number of invocations drops below a threshold. Um, it's like reading off of Kinesis, so it's pretty flat. Um, it's, it may go up, but it doesn't go below a certain threshold. So we got an alert saying, hey, this this dropped below the th- threshold. We immediately start, started going in and digging uh, into you know, IOPipe, for example, and looking at like what's going on. 
And, you know, there was like unexplained things going on on the Lambda side. It pointed us very quickly to, to Lambda possibly having like a networking issue on the container itself. Um, it ended up fixing itself. Fortunately, that's kind of the nice part about serverless is, you know, when, when things do happen like that, they are typically very quickly resolved. Um, but it is important to have the tools, uh, and visibility so that you can understand, was that their problem or was it my problem? Is there something I can do to avoid that happening in the future? And a lot of times, you know, in my past, like I've seen ops teams who just don't have an explanation. The thing fixed itself and they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what caused it, but it fixed itself. So, well, hopefully it doesn't happen again, right? That's not great. Um, so it's, it's really important to have like that level of visibility to understand like, yes, I can see these exact events that came through and I can go back and use it like an audit trail to understand like, how many of these requests were slow into which service? Um, I think that starts answering the questions and pointing the fingers at the right uh, provider. I will absolutely say that there's a incredible level of frustration with the way that the native tools are positioned around visibility into a Lambda function. Oh, just set up this complicated thing and tie 15 things together and look in three different places to <laughs> make sure that the ridiculous log message that's esoteric and arcane has the data you need. And having being able to look in one place rather than chasing down this giant laundry list of items was incredibly helpful when I was doing early debugging. And once the application became up and stable and quote-unquote done, Yes, I know, I know. No, things are never done. Don't email me. <laughs> you wind up in a scenario where, at that point, you just want to see anything that happens that's out of the norm. And for me, that's either inputs that aren't valid email addresses, that's my third-party API acting up that I'm bouncing off of, and I, I'm still annoyed by that. I'm in the process of replacing the component in question that does that. And it winds up getting to a point where I don't hear from the monitoring system. I don't think I can point at any other application I've ever worked on and say, yeah, it was quiet, except when something was broken. Dialing in was something that was always a work in progress, never done. So if I don't know if that's something that I can thank you folks for, if that's an artifact of the entire serverless model, or I just write such perfect code that unlike all of the idiots I used to work with previously, I know what's up. Yeah, I had to teach myself Python for this project. Um, I promise it is not that one. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think like serverless itself um, and in general, like event driven applications is opening up like a new type of instrumentation and observability where you can actually. Uh, and you may be forced to collect, you know, telemetry on every event going through the system. You know, if you look at like the previous incantations of monitoring and observability, it's really around like aggregations, right? So if you look at something, um, some some of the some of the pro- you know very popular tools that are out there, um, if you look at the resolution they provide, it's it's like they give you one second resolution. In one second, at a very high volume service, you may have hundreds of thousands of events or more flowing through a Lambda function. And if you only have you know, six metrics that tell you what happened during that one second, like you have no idea what, what really happened, right? You, don't, you may know that something was slow for five minutes, but you don't know who was affected. Or like if you're processing email signups or orders, you don't know which users were affected by that um, in general. So I think that by... The way that event-driven systems and especially Lambda and Function as a Service operates, um, tools like IOPipe and others, I think, are starting to collect more and more of that data, more of that telemetry, 
And you can go back and use it almost as an audit trail to go back and see, see you know, which emails were skipped um, during this outage that happened, um, which orders um, failed to execute due to you know, a network blip in the container. Um, these were just things that weren't possible before. And I think the, you know, there's many reasons for this, but I think in general, like the advances in um, technology and the, you know, reduced cost of storage over time has allowed us to start capturing all of that data. And that, that to me is like the foundation for like the next generation of observability tools. Um, I think all of the existing tools that are just showing you aggregate data are insufficient in this world. And once you've started using a tool that provides you with that level of resolution where you can see every single event and the telemetry around it, you know, especially at the business logic level, you can't go back once you've seen that. No, and I don't think there's ever going to be a putting that genie back in the bottle. I think that that ship is entirely sailed. I think that there's no real path forward for going back to the opaque things that we used to accept as normal once you become accustomed to what this unlocks and empowers. I suspect it's going to be a bit of a long road to get this into the mainstream, but we're seeing it in around the periphery an awful lot. Are you seeing something different in the sense where this this may come sooner than people expect? It, I think it will take time. I think in general, there are only like a, a couple of us startups who are providing this right now. But I, I think like for, for serverless to get mainstream, I think the cloud providers need to provide this themselves out of the box. The, the level of tooling that, you know, AWS provides around Lambda is, is not even close to sufficient right now. And I think that's a big hurdle. Um, you know, it's, this of course is against, like, <laughs> uh, is not really helpful to my, to my startup, IOPipe, but, um, you know, I, I think for the sake of serverless in general, um, like AWS needs to really up their, their level. Um, when it comes to observability, they need to start collecting all of these things and they need to make it so you're not having to jump through all of these hoops to answer questions. And they have to give you the, the appropriate telemetry to actually answer the important questions, which they're not doing right now. I think that's going to be a big blocker for serverless uh, until the service providers can step up their game. Let's move on to the dangerous portion of this episode. Specifically, you and I have sort of rough ideas from various directions of what might be coming down the pike and feature releases for reInvent at the end of November. Without violating trust, confidences, etc., what can we talk about? What are we hoping to see that comes out of AWS in the serverless space? Are there things you're excited that you hope to see? Are there things that annoy you that it isn't doing yet? Or is this such a landmine that we shouldn't even mention that there's a conference coming up next month? <laughs> I mean, I, I think like in general, you know, there, there are certain things I can't say, but I, I can tell you like what I hope exists and I have no idea if some of these will, will be announced or not. Um, it's just straight from like gaps that I think are um, in the current ecosystem. I think one of those is um, seeing them make significant progress on cold starts in other languages. I mean, they've already done it for some of the languages, but if you're still using things like Java, um, which which a lot of people are are doing, you know, the cold start situation in in that uh, world is like very painful. And the sarcastic answer of "oh, just don't use those languages" is sort of language bigotry <laughs> that I think serves no useful purpose anymore. It's all fun. We all have our favorite teams we like to bet on, but let, let's yeah, let's not urge people away from their platform of choice just to prop up something else. That tends to be a terrible model. So I'm with you on that. 
Right. And I, they probably won't announce anything because they, they generally don't talk about cold starts, um, or even like improvements that they make to cold starts. We notice, we notice like the cold start impact getting lower and lower and they just don't talk about it. So it's something they quietly fix, um, which is, which is fine. Um, but I think like in general, um, you know, more, you know, we've seen like ev- at every reinvent, they've added more languages to, to support. Um, Lambda, so I, I could expect more. Like, there's always more languages that people want. Like, some people want like PHP or Perl or, or whatever. You know, let them use those languages. I think that's an interesting one um, that that may come out, but we'll we'll see if we you know take could take bets on which languages are, are supported. Like the last one, I would never have won that bet. The the PowerShell um, definitely not on my radar, uh, but that's kind of interesting. Yeah, if you told me the list languages that would be supported in Lambda and you asked me to build a list in order of likelihood, I'm not sure I would have thought to include PowerShell at all. I mean, that's one of those things that winds up just coming completely right. <laughs> out of the blue. And they did it vaguely quietly too, which makes that even more interesting to me. Yeah, definitely definitely another one of those that was probably like done for a specific uh, customer or two <laughs> is, is my guess. But, uh, but I'm sure there are other like really popular languages out there that that I think uh, a lot of people want to see on on Lambda. So I, hopefully they're making some progress there. And they're they're already way ahead of everyone else there. I, I know the other cloud providers are uh, pretty far behind in offering lots of language choices. Um, but that's one area. I think the other area um, that I'd be interested in is, um, you know, I would love to see more like visibility out of the box into what's going on. I think that that needs a lot of a lot more effort. And I'm hoping that they'll have something to offer there in terms of like debugging tools. I think that's still kind of a weak story. I also think that like the deployment side of things is still quite weak. Um, one of the biggest complaints that we run into in talking to users is, is that just deploying is, is still a pain. Um, and I think they have a lot of the, the pieces in their arsenal to put something interesting together. Um, so hopefully that's, a, that's something that they're working on as well. I will give Amazon credit. They don't tend to sit and watch customers suffer. Yeah. They seem to at times from the public space. But internally, I've never yet had a conversation with an Amazon employee. And they were made aware of a customer issue and didn't care about it. Very often, I find that when I come to them with an engineering problem that annoys the heck out of me, they won't respond with, Wow, no one's ever said that before. <laughs> what they'll say, very honestly, is, yeah, we know. And because of X, Y, and Z, we're not able to do anything about that right now. We're working toward it, but it's more complicated than it looks from the outside. And I do believe them. I, yeah. I There are no simple problems when you're dealing at their scale and when you're dealing at this level of complexity. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think I think the other like big component is, with, while not like feature releases, um, you know, I think that there needs to be a lot more education happening um, from them um, to get more adoption. I know they're doing a lot, um, but I think that they need to, you know, spend more time um, at the various levels of orgs to help those companies make the decision um, if serverless is right or not for them. And I think that that involves like from the developer level. All the way to the top of the organization on down. I would agree. And I think that's probably a decent place to wind up calling it an episode. Will you be at reInvent at a booth? Will you be wandering around sadly looking for scraps of food? <laughs> Where can people catch up with you? Yeah, so we actually are going to have a booth for the first time. Um, it's, it's not going to be in the expo hall. It's, we're actually going to be in the ARIA. Um, I think it's near the registration. There's like going to be a little startup area. 
and we're going to have a little little tiny booth there. To be clear, this is something that's sanctioned by Amazon. This is not effectively you deciding that, yeah, they won't give us a booth, so we're going to make our own and just I don't know, <laughs> commandeering a table or something. We, we tried that in the past. It didn't work out well. But uh, this, time we, this time it's official. Yeah, their security is on point for this. It is. They're really good about it. Um, but yeah, we're going to be in the Aria, which I, which I believe is the hotel where all of the containers and serverless um, talks are going to be. So if you're, you know, if you're there and you're going to those talks uh, and you're in the Aria, stop by, see our booth. We're going to have some uh, interesting giveaways. And uh, we have a really interesting demo we're putting together with DeepLens um, and Lambda as well um, to show some, some kind of interesting things you can do with observability um, with video. Perfect. I look forward to venturing out of the Venetian, maybe, and catching up with you over in the Aria. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. I'm Corey Quinn. This is Adam Johnson of IOPipe. And this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.